Well, let's take a Bible this morning. We want to open it together. 1 Samuel chapter 16 in the Old Testament. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, uh, we want you to borrow our copy of the Bible. You'll find it on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 202. Page 202 in our copy of the Bible. 1 Samuel 16 in your copy. Can you guys hear okay out in the lobby? You all right? Raise your hands. I know you guys are all right. Okay, three or four months now, the Lord willing, we're going to fix this. So thanks for your patience. All right. Hey, you know, it was April 15th, 1865, and President Abraham Lincoln lay mortally wounded in the house directly across the street from Ford's Theater right here in Washington. In fact, he breathed his very last breath at 21 minutes and 55 seconds after 7 a.m. on April the 15th. And in his famous three-volume biography, Carl Sandburg points out that the very next day, Sunday, accolades poured forth from pulpit after pulpit, from church after church, all across America for the slain president. But Sandburg interestingly notes that, that these accolades came from many pastors who weren't exactly big supporters of Lincoln when he was alive. Actually, they were some of his worst critics. He also pointed out, Carl Sandburg did, that in many newspapers, newspapers that had vilified Lincoln, just crucified Lincoln when he was alive, all of a sudden there were editorials and all kinds of articles about what a wonderful man he was, what a great president he had been. And in observing this very interesting phenomenon, Carl Sandburg quoted an old frontier proverb that he felt applied. And the proverb simply says that a tree is best measured when it's down. And now that Lincoln was down, now that he was dead, suddenly the measuring stick that all these people had used when he was alive changed, and all of a sudden they measured him differently now that he was gone. And Sandberg points out that's not just true of trees, it's true of men and women as well. Well, the reason I bring all this up is because today we arrive at our very last message in our series on David. No applause is necessary, thank you very much. But I have people all the time come to me, are we ever finishing this? I mean, you know, David can't live forever, so how can your sermon series live forever? Well, we're finished. This is it. We're done. David is down like a tree. We're we're on our last message, and we want to measure his life now that he's down. What we really want to do is look back over 70 years of this man's life, and see what are the lessons that we see operating in this man's life. What were the pillars that this man built his life on that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century can build our lives on and enjoy the blessing of God like he did. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I have four lessons, four great pillars that David's life was built on that I want to share with you. And here's the first one. Lesson number one is that God is interested in the heart. God is interested in the inside of us more than He is the outside of us. Right here in 1 Samuel 16, if you remember, the Israelites had demanded a king. And and so God had given them their first king, a fellow named King Saul. And Saul had disobeyed God. God had rejected Saul as king. Now look at verse 1, chapter 16. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the next king. So off Samuel goes to Bethlehem looking to anoint one of Jesse's eight sons 
to be the next king of Israel. And when he arrives, look what, look what happens. Look down at verse 6 with me. And when they arrived, and Jesse brought all of his sons in to meet Samuel, Samuel looked at Eliab, the firstborn, the oldest. He was big. He was strong. He was impressive. Arnold Schwarzenegger Berg, or whatever of Israel. And they thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. He looked at him and said, wow, this has got to be the man. And look what God says, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. He's not the one. Remember, Samuel, the Lord doesn't look at things the way man looks at things, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this is an incredible statement. And what he's saying is, Samuel, didn't we learn our lesson the first time? I mean, remember Saul, 1 Samuel 9 verse 2 says that Saul was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any other Israelite. And so they, in picking Saul, they had already picked a man who on the outside was handsome, he was big, he was overpowering, he was impressive, but on the inside, spiritually, he was a midget. And God says, didn't you learn anything from that, Samuel? It doesn't matter what they look like on the outside. I'm interested in what's on the inside. I want to know what's in their heart. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Joan Rivers' show on E! Network. I've seen it a couple times just scrolling through the TV. And Joan Rivers and her daughter Melissa sit there for one hour... And they have film clips of every single celebrity, every single movie star who gets out at the Oscars, who walks on the red carpet at Cannes Film Festival, wherever. And they sit there and they critique every single thing about these people. Their clothing, their makeup, their hairdos, the jewelry they're wearing, how they get in and out of the automobile. It's unbelievable. And they rate them as the worst and the best. And the ratings on this show are phenomenal. People love this show, and I'll tell you why. It's a little hard to believe, but they do. The reason is because we live in a nation, we live in a society that is obsessed with outward appearance. Obsessed. Smoke and mirrors, style and profile, optics and image, that's the United States culture. Friends, what God is telling us here is that's not where God is. Not at all. God, with God, it is all about our hearts. It's all about our dedication to God. It's all about our surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It's all about our commitment to biblical obedience. It's all about our willingness to trust God and walk by faith. Lesson number one that we see here is that as followers of Jesus Christ, living in the 21st century, if we want to please God the way David did, we need to worry less about how we look on the outside and spend a lot more time worrying about how we look to God on the inside. We need to put more and more focus on our spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, things like Bible study, things like Scripture memory, things like meditating on the Word of God, things like fasting, things like seeking the face of God, things like trying to understand the heart of God, things like trying to learn the ways of God, really going hard after God. These are the things God cares about. He doesn't care what you look like on the outside. He could care less. And the really searching question is, how much time do we really spend on spiritual disciplines? How much time do we really spend worrying about what we look like on the inside to God? Do we spend as much time doing that as we do putting on our makeup every day? Think about it. Do we spend as much time in spiritual disciplines every day as we do shining our shoes and putting our coat and tie on and getting all dressed up in front of the mirror and combing our hair? Do we? 
I mean, that's a very small amount of the day, but I'll bet there's a lot of us who spend more time putting our makeup on than we do worrying about what we look like on the inside. This is a problem. Because one of the things about David sitting out there on that hillside tending sheep is that that man was cultivating his inside. And that's what excited God. He didn't care what he looked like on the outside. What do you look like on the inside to God? Principle number two, lesson number two, is that God loves to use the unlikely. God loves to use the unlikely. Look, God rejects Jesse's oldest son and says to Samuel, all right, go on to number two, verse eight. So then Jesse called Abinadab, his second born son, and he had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, eh, Lord hadn't chosen him either. So then they called his third born son, you'll see here, uh, and they had him pass in front of Samuel and Samuel said, Eh, not him either. And they went through number four, number five, number six, number seven. And when all seven of these boys had passed before Samuel, the Lord had not chosen any of them. You say, well, wait a minute, Lon. I thought you said that he had eight sons. Well, he does. But the last son, the runt, the shrimp, uh, the shrimp, the, 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 the least likely candidate, when they got a message and said, one of your sons is going to be appointed the next king, the last one in line, little David, he was so unlikely a candidate, would you notice they didn't even bring him to meet Samuel? And look, Samuel says, verse 11, so we asked Jesse, are these all the sons you got? You got a sons? And, and, and Jesse said, well, there's still, we, 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 the shrimp's still around, but he's out there tending the sheep. I mean, we, you, you don't want him. He's a little wimpy, runny sort. And, 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 and Samuel said, you go get him. And I'm not going to sit down until he arrives. So they ran and got him. And David was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. You know something interesting? That's the only physical description of David anywhere in the Bible. Why? Because God didn't care what he looked like on the outside. And as soon as Samuel saw him, God said to Samuel, that's the one right there. Anoint him. And so, verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed David in the presence of all his brothers. How do you think that went? Yeah, <laughs> well, whatever. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Isn't it interesting that, that God chose the most unlikely looking of all of Jesse's sons? So unlikely that Jesse, his own dad, didn't think he was a reasonable candidate for the job. Didn't even bring him in to meet Samuel. And that's the one God chose. Why? Because God loves to use the unlikely. And you know, as followers of Jesus, often we look around... And we see people who are powerful and wealthy and poised and charismatic and energetic and influential. And we look and we go, oh, man, if only God reached one of them, if only one of them would give their life to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what a difference they could make? I mean, if Ted Turner were to give his life to Jesus Christ, he could give a billion dollars to the work of God, not the United Nations. If only those movie stars came to Christ. Do you know the platform they've had? Well, well, well. Friends, you know something really interesting? When you look back through the history of the work of the kingdom of God, God never used people like that. Ever. God never uses the celebrities. God never uses the big shots. At least that's the record of the kingdom of God. I love what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, when we look for people to admire, when we choose our models, our heroes, we want the beautiful people, the brilliant people, the successful people. We want the best and the brightest because the superficial impresses us much more than we'd like to admit. But God says, 
That's not how I make my choices. I like to choose the nobodies and turn them into somebodies. And that, says Swindoll, in a nutshell, is the story of the life of David. End of quote. Now, you know, this is not just true of David. This is true down through the centuries. You know, God chose a crestfallen, defeated shepherd living out on the backside of the desert named Moses and brought and through him brought the most powerful empire on the face of the earth to its knees. God chose a bunch of ragtag fishermen from Galilee and through them built the early church and changed the entire course of Western civilization. God chose a poor shoemaker from London named William Carey and used him to set in motion the modern missionary movement that over the last 200 years has swelled the population of heaven by millions and millions of people. And God chose an overweight, insecure, uncultured, uneducated teenager who only had a third grade education and couldn't even punctuate a sentence correctly, a fellow named Dwight L. Moody, to lead over a million people to Jesus Christ personally. In fact, when Moody was in England in 1874 and preaching and the crowd were unbelievable and the decisions for Christ were unbelievable, one august British clergyman actually said to Moody, and I quote, he said, Mr. Moody, this work is most plainly of God, for you are so uneducated, so untrained, and so uncouth that I can see no relation at all between you and what is happening here. End of quote. And Moody said, Amen. You're right. You're absolutely right. And even in our day, we've seen the same thing happen with a simple, humble man like Billy Graham, who's shaken the world for Jesus Christ. And, and you say, well, Lon, that begs the question, why does God like to do it that way? It's very simple, friends, because when God uses nobodies, God gets all the glory. It's just like Moody. Moody, they said, Moody couldn't possibly be you. And that's the way God wants it. If God uses the big shots, people give the credit to the big shots. But when God uses nobodies... God gets the credit. That's why he does it that way. And, and here's our lesson, friends. As followers of Jesus Christ, here in the 21st century, by God choosing David, a nobody, the runt, the shrimp, the least likely of all the brothers in everybody's mind, God's trying to tell us something. He's trying to tell us that you may not be the sharpest tool in the toolbox. You may not be the prettiest pearl on the necklace. You may not be the smartest dog in the dog show. You may not be the juiciest strawberry in the fruit bowl. You got the idea, right? Okay, I don't need to keep going. You got the idea. You may not be one of those things, but guess what? You don't need to be. Actually, the more unlikely you look, the bigger a candidate you are for God to use you. All you need is a heart that is de dedicated to Jesus, a heart that is committed to doing things his way, a life that is sold out to the Lordship of Christ. And God can take you no matter how unlikely you look and use you to rock this world. I'm telling you. So if people all took a vote and voted you least likely to ever accomplish anything, then God wants you. He does. And he'll use you if you'll let him. By the way, may I say that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus in a real impersonal way as your Savior, that this has wonderful bearing on your life. Because I remember when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I was not yet a follower of Christ. I had this incredible sense inside of me that there was something great down in there. There was a destiny down in there. There was a, something that I was built to do. But you know what, friends? The passions of my life 
the bad passions, the destructive passions of my life were so strong that there was no way in the world by myself I could achieve that potential. It's when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I allowed Jesus to take my life over, not me, that's when the doorway was open for me to be able to achieve what God had built me to do. Jesus really does transform lives. You will never reach your potential that God has put in you by yourself. Your passions are too strong too. But you give your life to Jesus Christ and turn the pilot stick over to Him and you watch what happens. He'll take you places you never dreamed you could go as long as you keep giving the credit to Him. Now, principle number three is that failure is not fatal. It's what we learned from David. Failure is not fatal if we handle it biblically. I want you to flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you would, a little bit farther back in the Bible. And as you're turning, let me make sure we know what's going on here. If you remember, David has done some really nasty stuff. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has gotten her pregnant. He has murdered her husband, first degree, premeditated, intentional murder. Then he's covered it up for over a year. And finally, God sends Nathan the prophet to go meet him. <clears throat> and Nathan, <clears throat> excuse me, if you remember, comes in and tells him a little story. He says, hey, David, I need to tell you a story. He said, there was this rich man in town <clears throat> and he had all of these sheep. And then there was this poor man living right near him who had one little bitsy, bitsy baby sheep that slept in the bed with him and just wonderful. And you know what the rich man did, David? The rich man had a friend come to visit him from out of town. And instead of taking one of all of his sheep to make a banquet for his friend, you know what he did, David? He went over and took that man's itsy bitsy little sheep. And he killed that sheep to feed his friend. And David was furious. Look at verse 5. And David burned with anger, the Bible said, against that rich man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He's got to pay back four times over for that lamb because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Oh, man, I can only imagine what this moment was to look like. I wish I'd been a fly on the wall. When Nathan took his finger out and pointed it at David and said, David, you are the man. You're the rich man who did that. You had all these wives. You could have had any one of them you wanted. But what did you do? You went and took Uriah, that man, his one and only wife who he loved. You took her. And then you killed him. You are the man. Think it was quiet in there at that moment? Oh, man. Now, that, that was a pretty serious mistake David had made. Talk about failure. I'd say this qualifies as miserable failure, wouldn't you? Could it have been fatal? Oh, yeah. Could David have lost his ministry, lost his kingship, lost his fortune, lost it all? Oh, yeah. Might have even lost his life. But it didn't turn out that way. And you know why? Let me show you. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David repented. And friends, repentance is what keeps failure from becoming fatal if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because repentance is what activates the mercy of God. Isn't it interesting that King Saul didn't do anything nearly as serious on the human level as David did? King Saul never committed adultery. King Saul never murdered anybody. And yet Saul was rejected and his kingship was taken away. David committed adultery and murder and kept his kingship. How do you explain that? I'll tell you how. One simple reason. David repented. Saul never did. David activated the mercy of God by repenting. Saul never did. 
And I really believe that one of the most important skills, if not the most important skill that a follower of Jesus Christ has got to have is the ability to repent. Because that's how we activate the mercy of God. Now, I, I can't leave you here without telling you how to repent. I mean, this is a wonderful point, but if you don't know how to do it, it's worthless. So let me make sure we walk you through very quickly and tell you what are the four, four, what are the four component parts of repentance. They're all in Psalm 51, if you'd flip over there with me. Psalm 51, it's page uh, 405, if you're using our copy of the Bible. And when you get there, you might notice that in Psalm 51, right under the heading of the psalm, is a little note that says that David wrote this right after the prophet Nathan came to see him. So what you're reading here in Psalm 51 happened right after the events we just looked at. Now, all four of the component parts of repentance are in this, in this psalm. The first one is this, true repentance starts with a broken heart. Look at verse 16, Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it to you, David says. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And when, when we're talking about repenting, God is not looking for courtroom repentance, where we dress up, put a nice tie on, a white shirt on, and walk in and tell the judge whatever he wants to hear. Uh-uh. That's not what we're looking for here. We're looking for a broken heart. We're looking for a heart that authentically says, I am brokenhearted I did this. I am brokenhearted I hurt people. I can't believe I damaged people like this. I am brokenhearted I let God down that li like this. My heart is cracked in half. That's where repentance starts. Number two, component number two, is that true repentance does no blame shifting. Makes no excuses. Look at verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me, David says, against you, Lord, and you only have I done wrong and done what is evil in your sight. Isn't it interesting? David doesn't have any alibis. He doesn't have any rationalizations. He doesn't have any excuses. It wasn't his mother. It wasn't his socioeconomic condition. It wasn't the way he was raised. It wasn't in his genes. It wasn't his heredity. It was, I did it. It's my fault, period. That's repentance. Principle number three is a true repentance is willing to accept whatever consequences God deems appropriate. Look at the end of the verse, verse 4. David says, it's all my fault. I, I, I've done it. I have no excuse. And I say this, look at the end of the verse, so that you, God, are proved right when you speak and you are proved justified. You are righteous when you judge me. When you take what I did wrong and you judge it, and you assign consequences for what I have done, whatever those consequences are, God, I want people to know you are right. You are justified. I am not a victim. You are not picking on me. I deserve everything you decide to lay on me, and I willingly submit to the consequences because this is all my fault. That's repentance. But there's a fourth step. A lot of people do the first three, and they do them well. But there's step number four, and if you don't do step number four, repentance never hits critical mass. This is the one we miss. Step number four is that true repentance results in genuine life change. Look at verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. John the Baptist said it this way, John Matthew 3, verse 8. He said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And what David and John the Baptist are both trying to tell us is that true repentance always produces 
a change of heart that always produces a change in behavior. Uh, No matter how you slice it, we cannot repent properly before God unless we make a deliberate decision to alter our behavior, to break away, to turn away from the way we've been doing it, that God is in trouble to start with, and to pursue righteous behavior. If you don't do that, you haven't repented yet. There has to be that deliberate decision to make a U-turn in whatever area of your life got you in trouble. David repented. And friends, you know what? As followers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, you're going to make some mistakes. Yes, you are. I am too. Some of the mistakes you're going to make are going to be bad mistakes. Some of the mistakes you make are going to be mistakes that push you right up to the threshold of fatality in some area of your life. Your ministry, your business, your family, they're going to be right on that threshold. And you better know, I better know how to keep that mistake from going over that threshold and turning into fatality. And how do you do it? You do it by repenting. That's what it's all about. This man, David, he stepped on landmines. Yes, he did. But he knew how to repent and to do it from the heart. And that's what saved him. And that's what will save you and me. God's ways have not changed and it works the same today. Repent. It's an important skill. We need to master it. Last of all, lesson number four is that honor God, here's the lesson, honor God and He will honor you back. I love 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Here's what the Lord says, those who honor me, I will honor. And in my opinion, friends, if there were a single component of David's life that stands out the most to me over the 70 years he lived, it's this one. Regardless of the situation that David found himself in, even when he messed up, even when he made mistakes, Regardless of the crisis he was in, David had a heart that always sought to honor God, whatever the cost was. And by doing this, David activated one of the greatest promises in the Bible. You honor me, God says, and here's my promise. I will honor you back in ways that will rock your world. You won't believe what I'll do for you. Now, you know, we have uh, three boys. Uh, we have a disabled little girl, too. But we have three normally developing boys. At least we think that on most days. <laughs> and, um, and anyway, we, we try to teach them how to live. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. And one of the lessons Brenda and I have tried to teach our boys is, hey, you know what? You're going to get to times in life when you don't know what to do. You're going to get to times in life where the Bible doesn't tell you what to do. You're going to get to times in life where you've got 50 different people giving you advice and you've got 20 different options available to you. And here's how you know what to do, kids. You figure out which one of those options most honors God. And that's what you do. Now, here's the rub. The rub is the the option that most honors God is almost without exception not the one we want to do. You understand what I'm saying? Those two things are hardly ever the same. In fact, in my life, I can't think of one time they were ever the same. And that's because honoring God is not what we feel like doing in most situations. But if we will make the deliberate choice to honor God, not to do what we feel like, but to do what honors God, God will reward your life, we tell our kids, in ways you won't believe. And we try to set the example as best we know how of doing that as a family. Folks, that's true for you. Maybe you're facing some situations now where you've got to make some choices and you don't know what to do. Hey, i got good advice for you. Sit down and figure out which choice honors God the most and do it. Maybe you'll have decisions to make in the future. Which one honors God the most? Do that. Take the high road. 
And yeah, it'll be harder. And yeah, it'll be more costly. And yes, you won't want to do it. And yes, your friends will tell you you're stupid. But listen, your friends aren't running the universe. Thank God for that. God's running the universe. And if you do what honors God, forget your friends, forget what you want to do. You do what honors God. I'm here to tell you, you are going to activate one of the greatest promises in the world. David activated it. And look what God did for David. The Bible says, 2 Samuel 8, 14, And the Lord gave David success wherever David went. Now, that's a pretty awesome statement. And that's my heart for you. I want God to give you success wherever you go. I want God to bless your life wherever you go. And friends, this is how we do it. We honor God. And then God honors us. For people who are willing to make those hard choices, God's got a special reward that he gives them. And David was the recipient. You can be too. Okay, let's summarize. We're done. What have we learned? Well, in measuring the tree when it's down, we see four great lessons. Number one, we see that God's interested in our hearts. God's interested in what's on the inside. Cultivate the inside more than you do the outside. Number two, that God loves to use the unlikely. And that means if you're not somebody that everybody thinks is a great candidate to do something great for God, you're probably the perfect candidate. Give your life to Jesus and watch what happens. Number three, failure is not fatal if we handle it biblically. Know how to repent and do it. When you mess up, you'll activate the mercy of God. It won't be a fatality. And principle number four, honor God and he will honor you back. Make the hard choices. Make the hard choices to honor God and He'll honor you back. Now, folks, if we could build our lives on these four pillars, just think about it now. These were the pillars David built his life on. If we could build our life on these four pillars, can you imagine what God would do with your life? If you could get your children and your grandchildren to build their lives on these four pillars, what a blessing you're imparting to them. And that's my challenge to you today. Take a hard look at your life and say, God, is this, are these the pillars my life's built on? Because the world's trying to get you to build your life on a bunch of other pillars. Monetary success, power, prestige, self-aggrandizement, self-promotion. Those are the wrong pillars to build a life on, friend. These are the pillars. And I thank God for telling us about them. Now it's our job to go with His help and let's build a life on them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thanks for talking to us today. We need you to talk to us, God. Thanks for reminding us today of the pillars that you want our life built on. And I, I pray that you would take what we've talked about today and you would change our value system, change our lives, because we were here and had contact with you. And Lord, if there's any one of these areas where we sitting here need a course correction, I pray you'd give us the courage to, along with you, as a partnership, as a team, to make those course corrections and make our life fall into conformity with the pillars that we've learned from the life of David. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you now. We want you to honor our lives. So thanks for teaching us how today. May we put this into practice, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.